walked away from your first love? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? Turn back and recover your early love. I can see your pain and poverty. However, I also see your wealth. Fear nothing in the things that you're about to suffer. I see where you live, under the shadow of Satan's throne. But you continue boldly in my name. Don't give in to them. I'll be with you soon. You have become too tolerant, caught up in the teachings of sexual immorality and idols. I will repay you according to your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. I know your deeds. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. You have little strength, but you have kept my word. You are neither hot or cold, and because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out. So be earnest and repent. So whoever has ears, let them hear. When I was a young minister, one of my preaching heroes was an uh, African-American pastor of a church in Los Angeles named Dr. E.V. Hill. In fact, I had the honor of getting to hear him preach uh, in person one time. And I remember in the 1990s when the Promise Keepers movement was going strong, he was traveling to Denver to speak at Mile High Stadium filled with 70,000 men. And he was asked by a journalist two days earlier why he was going to Denver and what they were going to do for two days. And he said, we're going to talk about Jesus. And the journalist replied, is that all? And later, Dr. Hill would smile and say, he just doesn't know how much that is. So just... How much is Jesus? Nothing is more revealing about a person or a church than their answer to that one question. Just how much is Jesus? And nothing is more needed by a church than a fresh revealing of that answer. And so I told you earlier in the year that I want next year to do a series through the book of Revelation. So I've been reading the book all summer preparing. My plan is to take it one or two chapters at a time, but I got to chapter two and three. Letters of Jesus to the churches. And I realized there was too much there to cover in just one sermon, so I'm going to do a whole series. If you know Revelation, you know the number seven stands for completion. And so by choosing seven churches, what Jesus is saying is, I'm writing to all my churches. I'm writing for all my churches for all 
times. Because he knows it's never easy to be the church. Especially in the times when John was on a rock in the middle of the ocean in exile. You see, to understand the themes of Revelation, you have to understand the times. And if you ever get a letter from your pastor who is in exile, you know you're living in tough times. Rome was the world empire. And how do you rule a world? You need two things. Number one, you need power, and Rome had power. The world had never seen to date a military machine like Rome. But you need more than power to keep people in subjection. You need faith. And so what Rome would do whenever an emperor would die was they would declare that he was divine. They would start to call him a god. And they would build a statue or a monument or they would mint a coin. But in the late part of the first century, a man becomes emperor named Domitian. And Domitian is the first Roman emperor to declare himself a god while he is still alive. And this raises a whole new set of issues. Because now Rome expects you to go to an altar and put a pinch of incense on it and say these words. Caesar is Lord. Now here's the thing. Rome doesn't care if you have other gods. They don't really care if you believe that Caesar is a god. But you need to publicly say Caesar is Lord. And all over these seven towns, there's these people meeting in houses, worshiping a man named Jesus. And the foundation of their faith is that he alone is Lord. So what do you do now? And John knows the churches have got two choices. Because these seven churches are in a part of the world called Asia. We call it Turkey. And Asia was the most pro-Roman of all the provinces. And they didn't put up with people that wouldn't express allegiance to Rome. So you're going to have two choices in church. Choice number one is to face persecution, and that's what some of the churches chose. And so when we read these letters, we're going to see that in some of these churches... People actually died because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. In fact, I'm not sure you can really understand the book of Revelation if you don't live in a place where the government will kill you if you don't obey them. But choice number two is accommodation. To just blend in. To give the world what it wants. To look so much like the world, there's nothing to persecute. And when we read the letters, we're going to find out that's what some of the churches chose to do. And so John is praying. He didn't know what else to do. He's on this rock in the middle of the water. He can't be with the churches. He knows they're facing a choice. Some are choosing to face persecution and they need encouragement. And some are choosing accommodation, and they need enlightenment. So what John does is he opens the curtain to the heavenlies. And he helps the churches realize that something is going on here a lot bigger than Rome. There's a battle going on here that's a lot more cosmic than the story they're seeing. There's this little Catholic church I read about recently in Mishawaka, Indiana. 
And they got a steeple. And in the steeple, these two hawks have built a nest and they've had baby hawks. So they've now become very protective of the ground around their nest. And so lately when parishioners have tried to go to church, the hawks have flown down to attack and protect the nest. Two different people have gotten stitches in their heads. And the thing is, the hawks are an endangered species and they're protected. You can't do anything about them. So all the priest can do is say, if you come to church, bring an umbrella, wear a helmet, you might get attacked. (laughs) And that's what's going on. John says, do you understand something's going on here bigger than just what Rome is doing? That you're being attacked from above. And he pulls back the curtain and he says, there is a cosmic battle going on. And he's going to name the enemy. Four times in seven letters, he specifically mentions Satan. You need to understand, Satan hates the church. Because the church is the instrument that Jesus is using to take back Satan's illegitimate dominion. And so he attacks the church on the outside with persecution and on the inside with compromise. So John's praying. He's praying for the churches, and he gets an answer, and the answer he got was so revealing. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun. In all its brilliance, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. (coughs) Write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John is praying for these churches because times are tough. And here's what he gets. Here's what the churches need. Not some cool new website. Or some hot new program. But what John gets is a revelation. Because a church's greatest need is to remember who Jesus is. You see, it's not the revelation of John 
It's a revelation that was and is through John. But it's the revelation that was and is from Jesus. It's a revelation that was and is of Jesus. And it was and it is an extremely controversial revelation. Because Rome said, we own the kingdoms of the world. Rome claimed to hold the keys of life and death. Rome claimed the right to ultimate allegiance. And the revelation of Jesus Christ says, nah. And it's the mission of the church to faithfully witness to the reality of just how much Jesus is. It is the primary purpose for everything we do as a church to present a compelling vision of Jesus because nothing is more revealing about a church than how much they make of Jesus. And it's got to be sadly admitted that in many churches, Jesus has become little more than an accessory. Because we have become very good at making church about us. Church is about our felt needs and our agendas and our happiness. And Jesus has often been reduced to little more than a therapist who shows up to give us counsel on how we can have the life that we've always wanted. We don't need Jesus to show up and make it about us. We need to show up and make it about Jesus. The constant need of the church is a fresh revealing of who Jesus is. Now, I'm I'm about to get ramped up. I'm just telling you right now. You're going to think I'm on steroids because you need this sermon. And the reason you need this sermon is because a second ago I said the church's greatest need is to remember who Jesus is. And I only got two amens and I should have got 70. So put on your seatbelts. You need what I'm about to say. Here's the first thing. We need a realization of his proximity. Jesus is not an absentee landlord. See, one comfort John has, he's on this rock in the middle of the ocean. He can't be with the churches, but he realizes that Jesus is never exiled from his church. The reason Jesus knows so much about the churches is because he is among the churches. In fact, look at the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church. Oh, by the way, churches have angels. That's how cosmic this battle is. This church has an angel. We need one because it's a big battle. And to the angel, he says, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this has two profound implications for us right now. First one is we got to understand there is nothing we can store in the corner away from the gaze of Jesus. Do we understand that Christ is here right now? That Jesus is in the house. Kevin Miller from Wheaton tells a story. A friend of his named Joe. He flies a lot for his business. And so he says this particular flight, the 
flight attendant crew was the most engaged and enthusiastic he'd ever experienced. Before they landed, he said to one of the attendants, I've never seen a crew that was more hospitable, more efficient, more service-oriented. And she said, well, you can thank the woman in 12B. And he looked back and said, why? Because she is a supervisor of all the flight attendant crews in this airlines. <laughs> because when the one in charge is in the house, it should affect your actions and your attitudes. Now... What I'm about to say is not to make anybody feel guilty, but it's to make you think. Would anyone get the impression sitting around you the last 30 minutes that you think Jesus is in the house? Now, I know sometimes we have car trouble or the kids mess up their diapers right when you're trying to load the car. I understand that sometimes there's bad traffic, but when every week you're 20 minutes late to church... Do you think Jesus is in the house? When I look out and I see about 20 people with their cell phones out and they're not checking their Bible apps. Is Jesus in the house? When you sing, if you sing at all like this, with so little passion on your face, you'd think it was a eulogy. Do you think Jesus is among his church? I don't say this to make us feel bad. I say it to make us think. It should be motivating to us to know that Jesus is among his church. And it should be a reason to celebrate. Because think with me now. If Jesus is in the house, then there's nothing that can destroy the church. Nothing. Why, for centuries, and even today, in some of the most wicked, despotic regimes that have done nothing but torture and kill Christians, does the church survive? Because Jesus is in the house. And as long as Jesus is among the church, nobody can touch her candlestick. And we need to recover this. Jesus alone decides the destiny of his church. We need to recover a sense of his proximity, also a sense of his sovereignty. Revelation is not about the end of the world. It is about the end of the kingdoms of the world and the glorious future of the kingdom of Christ. That's why the word throne is found in the book of Revelation more than any other book in the Bible. The church needs to recapture the vision of the absolute authority of Christ and the absolute futility of all Satan's attempts to oppose or depose him. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. Not will be, is right now. Revelation calls us to choose a kingdom, and you can't choose two, because you can't have two lords. You just have one. And before you choose, Revelation says, just let me show you which kingdom has a future and which ones don't. Charles Colson passed away this past year. You might remember that he was in the Nixon White House, sent to prison for water great crimes. In prison, he finds Christ, spends the rest of his life leading a powerful prison ministry. And in one of his books, he says, you know, when I was in that Nixon White House, we would meet around this polished mahogany table in the Roosevelt room right across from the Oval Office every morning. 
Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, would come in and he would say, the decisions we're going to make today will affect the history of mankind. And we really believed it. We really thought that we were going to decide the future of the race. He says sometimes later, now that he's a Christian, he's in Rome. And he's standing across from the ruins of the Roman Forum. And the thought came to him. 2,000 years ago, when they're flowing togas, the senators stood in that building and they thought the same thing. That we are going to decide the future of the world. And now their building is just a tourist stop. This is what happens to the kingdoms of men. So, why do we Christians get so rabid about the affairs of human government? I'm about to offend both sides of the political process, so prepare yourself. Why do we put our hopes in the kingdoms of men? Why do we let human agendas ask for our highest allegiance? And I'm just going to tell you, in the next two months, if you're one of those Christians that likes on either side to post your political rants and send out your emails, please take me off your list. Why do you think that a certain party or a certain man has to be in power for the sake of the kingdom of God? When has the kingdom of God ever needed the support of the kingdoms of men to be the kingdom of God? Choose your kingdom, but just one is going to last. Here's our problem. It's not that we don't understand premillennialism or postmillennialism or whatever that thousand-year reign is. It's that we suffer from pessimillennialism. (laughs) And I'm saying to you that if Jesus is on the throne then we can have hope no matter who's in office. We can have joy no matter how the economy goes. We can have purpose no matter what laws get passed or don't get passed. We can have convictions no matter what the courts decide. And if we do, it's very revealing. And if we don't, if we act like Jesus is going to rule someday, but he's not in charge right now, then we are little more than practical atheists. And so before you choose a kingdom, you need to remember how much Jesus is. Proverbs says there is no wisdom, there's no insight, there's no plan that can succeed against the Lord. He is Lord. We need to remember that. We need to recover the vision of His deity. I'm glad that we go to the Gospels and we get this picture of Jesus in his earthly humiliation. We need that picture. But we need to go to Revelation and we need to get the picture of Jesus in his heavenly exaltation. It's one of the reasons we gather to make much of Jesus because he is so much. Because here's our problem. We're caught up in these earth suits We're flatlanders. It's hard for me to imagine there's anything beyond the curtain. And so we tend to make church about the horizontal more than the vertical. And so if you're a baby boomer like me, church was all about fellowship. Man, we just got to get together and have better fellowship. 
And if you're of my kids' generation, church is all about justice. We got to be out on the street and help the poor. It's all about justice. And all of that's good. But you can do all of that and push Jesus to the periphery. Tim Keller tells a story of a Sunday school teacher that changed his life. He said they held a piece of paper. He said, the width of this piece of paper is 92 million miles, the distance of the earth to the sun. He said, it would take a stack of papers 70 feet high to reach the nearest star. It would take a stack of papers 310 miles high to go across our galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of millions of galaxies that Jesus holds in his hand. Now, is this the kind of God you ask to come into your life to be your assistant? I believe in community and service. Our mission statement as a church is to grow followers of Jesus through worship, community, and service. But would you please notice worship comes first. The first thing you do is you remember what place Jesus is in. Worship is the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. It's our conscious declaration. There's only one Lord and he gets all our allegiance. Throughout Revelation, read it. Every time there's a new vision of Jesus, the same thing happens. Bodies fall down and praise goes up. Listen to the rest of the reading from verse 5 on through verse 8 in chapter 1. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He's made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. That's who your Jesus is. We come to church to worship Him. We come to encounter Him. We come to declare our allegiance to Him and to renounce any other call that expects us to think it is also Lord. And I don't know about you, but I need the curtain to come back. I need to see the bigger heavenly picture. I need the transcendent to be transformed. I need the constant revelation of how much Jesus is. And so in the 1970s, a group of men started having a weekly prayer meeting in the White House. Oh, a chance to gather and encourage each other and pray to Jesus. And they were surprised that one man who began to come regularly was named Arthur Burns, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Systems. I say surprised because Arthur Burns was Jewish. And in respect for his faith, they never asked him 
to pray because they were praying to Lord Jesus. But one week someone who was new and did not know of Mr. Burns' faith asked him to lead the closing prayer. And before anyone could object, he grabbed the hands of the men around him and he prayed. Lord, please bring Jews to a knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. Please help Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And finally, Lord, please bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. Amen. Now someday, every single person on earth will have a revelation of Jesus Christ. I want mine now. And so I'm praying now, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would give us a fresh revealing of Jesus Christ. We live with so much propaganda, and Jesus is so controversial, and it's just easy, God, to push him to the side. Forgive us. And help us to resist all the pressure we face to make little of Jesus. We declare He alone is Lord. His kingdom alone is the kingdom that lasts. That only what we do for Him matters eternally. And His well done is the only person we ultimately need to please. And so God, give us today, each one of us, a new vision of Jesus. Help us to make much of Him who has done so much for us. For His glory, I ask this. Amen. I specifically requested this next song because it says that Jesus alone rescues. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone has power over the grave. There's no other competition. There's just one Lord. And we need to lift up our eyes. Just lift up our eyes and see Jesus. Would you all stand? Prayer teams, come to the front. This is a weekend that some of you need to do business with Jesus. And when I say repent... I mean recalibrate because he hasn't been center. He's been on the edge. Let's do some business. Some of you are going to get saved this weekend. You're going to choose Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus. And remember, every time we worship, the way we worship is revealing.